Welcome to Study the Word Podcast with your host, Dr. Marty Mento. Together we will discover wisdom that leads to salvation and spiritual growth. Here with today's Bible teaching is your host, Dr. Marty Mento. Well, once again, thank you, Randy, and welcome to Study the Word Podcast. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. That is John chapter 4. We are in the midst of a series entitled Biblical Worship. And uh, I've heard quite a bit from different listeners in regards to uh, this topic so far. And again, the reason why we are in the midst of this uh, mini-series is because there just seems to be a lot of confusion today when it comes to true biblical worship. Now, as I have said, uh, this study is not an exhaustive study. There is so much, so many different aspects that we could talk about when it comes to biblical worship. And uh, I'm only kind of giving you a snapshot that maybe help uh, bring about um, really um, some balance to a lot of the confusion that is out there today in regards to this topic. But we're in John chapter 4. We're in the story of the woman of Samaria, and she is at the well, and Jesus asked her for a drink. And if you've studied this before, there is much that we can learn from this story. But what I want to do is just jump right down uh, to verse 20. And in verse 20, um, we are going to see really the in-depth discussion about worship because this woman believes that uh, Jesus is possibly a prophet. She doesn't know really truly who he is. He talked about giving her living water. She doesn't quite understand that. Her eyes are still not opened. Um, She is not realizing who Jesus truly is. And she says here in verse 20, as I begin to read in John chapter 4, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, again, all the answers, or I should say all the questions that may arise from this passage, and all the answers that we're seeking after when it comes to biblical worship are not necessarily found here. However, the foundational truth about biblical worship is found in this passage. Um, and, and I cannot stress this enough. And, and again, if you break it down and you look at it very distinctively and clearly as we're going to try our best here uh, today on this podcast, you'll begin to realize some principles, some things that are of the utmost importance when it comes to biblical worship. First of all, biblical worship is not about a place. We see this here in verse 20. Um, it's not about worshiping in a specific place, uh, a mountain versus a temple. Uh, both the Jews and Samaritans knew that God had commanded their forefathers to identify a place for worship. Matter of fact, let me give you some passages of Scripture that help you better understand. If you have your Bibles, 
Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. That's Deuteronomy chapter 12. And look with me for a moment, if you would, at verse 5. That's Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. And here is what we read in Deuteronomy 12, 5. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. So we know right there from this passage that God is directing the Jewish people, the children of Israel, that they, he is going to tell them exactly where they need to go to worship him. So again, um, God had commanded the forefathers uh, to identify a particular place when it comes to worshiping God. Now, the Jews accepting the whole Hebrew canon chose Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, we'll show you this in 2 Samuel. That is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 13. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 13. Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelled in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with you of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the name of great men who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. So here we have, once again, God directing, God establishing amongst his people that there is going to be a particular place in which God himself will determine when it comes to the worship of God. He is going to determine that place where they are going to go to. He's going to establish it so that they may, once again, come together and they may worship their God the true and the living God. Uh, let me give you one more passage, and that's Second Chronicles chapter 6. 
That's 2 Chronicles chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verse 6. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. So once again, here is God making it clear that he not only chose a leader over the children of Israel, but he has chosen a specific place for them to be, to go to worship. Now, again, understanding this, as the Samaritan woman did at the well, she realized that there was places that were chosen or a place that was chosen. But the disagreement comes in the reality of where this place is. Is it a mountain? Is it in a particular temple place? Where exactly are they to go to worship? Well, again, the Samaritans believed it was a particular mountain that they were supposed to go and they were supposed to worship God. But the Jews say it's in Israel. That's where they're supposed to go to worship God. So the Samaritans recognizing really only the Pentateuch held on really to the first place Abraham built an altar to God, which was Shechem. We find that in Genesis chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. Now, Shechem uh, was overlooked by Mount Gerizim. We found that, that understanding in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. And this is the place that they chose to worship God. So again, they're following only the Pentateuch, holding on to what Abraham did first, but also recognizing that Mount Gerizim, or Gerizim, excuse me, overlooked uh, Shechem. They chose that that place was the place because of Abraham and what Abraham did. That's where they were going to worship God. But not the Jews. The Jews, again, being led by God, understanding that they were appointed by God leaders like David, that the place ultimately that they would go to worship is Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting about this, because as we study this, as we begin to carefully look um, distinctively and carefully at this topic of worship, we begin to worship, realize some things about worship. As I said already, biblical worship is not about a particular place, even though in the Old Testament it was. Because we learn from Scripture in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, and I'm going to read this, and this is Paul as he is speaking and bringing forth a sermon on Mars Hill. He's speaking to the men of Athens. He says, The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. So we begin to realize, secondly here, that the God in which we serve, the living God today, does not dwell in temples made by hands. Now, there was a time, as we just mentioned, that there were places in which God ordained for, again, Abraham, Moses, and others to go 
and that his presence would be there. But in the New Testament, underneath the New Covenant, the realization is Jesus is teaching the woman at the well. The issue is no longer about a mountain, nor about a temple. It is not about a specific place. It is about a reality that men who worship God will worship God in spirit and in truth, because God is spirit. And God does not dwell in temples that are made by hands anymore. That was underneath the old covenant, his Shekinah glory, his presence was in those places of old. But since the bringing about of the new covenant, we have an understanding that really has never changed because God is spirit. God is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. God is God. He is not bound by a particular building or a particular mountain. However, he's the one who chose these places in which the children of Israel and those who followed after God would come and worship him. They would build altars. They would bring sacrifice. That would be a place in which his presence would be as they offered up their sacrifices and praise to God. But underneath the new covenant, things have changed. And this is very important, and I cannot stress this because there are many people that I really believe still fall into, unfortunately but true, a misunderstanding about this whole entire issue of where we worship. There's some people who believe that the only place that you can actually go to worship God is inside of a church building. You have to be inside of a church building. If you're not inside of a church building, then truly the worship that you're offering um, is not pure. It's not true because God is not there. But as I just read from to you from Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul makes it clear, just as Jesus does to the woman at the well, about the truth, the reality of God himself. Now, this is important. Because as believers, as Christians, we believe when we are born from above or born again, we receive the Spirit of God within us. Matter of fact, Paul writes to those at Corinth when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, verse 16, he writes, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So something takes place underneath the new covenant that is different. The promises is that God would put his spirit within men and he would dwell within them forever. Those who belong to him, those who have put their faith, that saving faith, which is a gift from God, that he himself would dwell within that individual. They would be the temple of God. It would no longer be a temple or a building created by hands, like in Jerusalem. It would no longer be a particular place in which an altar was established somewhere where sacrifices were made on a particular mountain, but it would be an actual human being that the Spirit of God, the presence of God, would make abode with that individual who belongs to God. And 
that then becomes the temple of God. So you as a believer, you are the temple of God. So let's go back to the passage here. Our fathers worship in this mountain, and you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus says to her, women, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. So the worship of the Father on the mountainside or in Jerusalem is going to cease. Now what's interesting about the language in this passage is he says an hour is coming. And then he says in verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So so let's break this down a little bit more. So first of all, worship, biblical worship is not about a place. That's number one. Number two, when it comes to worship, true biblical worship has to be that which is done in truth. In other words, we have to know the Father. We have to truly know him in order to worship him. Um, There are a lot of people that I've met over the years, and I fell into this category once in my life growing up in the church. I knew about God, but I did not know God. And so I look at my life in all those years when I attended church and the worship service, and my worship was truly in vain. And the reason why it was in vain is the same reason that Jesus gives to the woman at the well. You worship what you do not know. That word know is a word of intimacy, in the Greek and also in the Hebrew, it, it, it defines intimacy, even that of an intimacy between a man and a woman. It is something so intimate to know one, to know someone. And the truth of the matter is, in order for us to properly worship God, we must know God. And the only way we can know God is through his Son, Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, there is a passage, if you have your Bibles, turn with me for just a moment and look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Here's the words of Jesus. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, and where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let me stop there for just a moment. If you study the Word of God, you realize that Jesus Christ is the door. He is the door. He is the entrance into the kingdom of God. There is no way to get into the kingdom of God the Father 
except through his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, salvation is not available in any other manner or means except by believing by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. There's no other entrance. You can't get in any other way. You can't get in because of works. You can't get in because of, you know, maybe praying or giving or doing good or trying to keep the law of God. There is nothing that you can do in order to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, why this verse is so important is is because not only is he the way, the entrance to God the Father, but he takes it a step further. He says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So in order to know the Father, you have to know the Son. I've had people over the years say, well, you know, I believe in God, but this Jesus thing I really don't get. I'm not not sure I can go there with you, Marty, about Jesus, but I do believe in God. Well, not only this passage, but there are many other passages in the Scripture that make it plain and clear that you cannot separate the two because the two are one. You can't say you know God, and yet you don't believe in Jesus or say that you believe in Jesus, but you don't know God the Father. Jesus is making it clear, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves." This is very deep. This, this is very personal. This is where the rubber meets the road. Jesus is making it clear. The only way that you can know the Father, the only way you can get to the Father in his kingdom in heaven is through Jesus Christ. You have to know who Jesus is. It reminds me of that passage. Uh, I have talked about this many times over and over again because I really believe It is a place within Scripture that really Jesus himself questions his disciples very distinctively and clearly, and it's Matthew chapter 16. And it's starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, or Caesarea Philippi, I should say, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, this question is important to Christ because it's important for us to understand why he's asking this question. 
Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, I could spend a whole podcast or many podcasts talking about this passage. But the bottom line is Peter got the right answer. That Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. But Jesus makes it clear that he didn't come up with this answer on his own, but it is the Father who revealed this. It's the Father who disclosed this. It's the Father who made this known to Peter. It is a work of God within an individual. They who were spiritually blind and dead and deaf and who could not see, he removes the cover. He gives them life. They're able to understand. They're able to recognize. They're able to know that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this, again, is the work by God the Father. But the reason why this is so important, and going back to the question why Jesus asked twice, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Because if we don't have the right answer, then truly we cannot worship God, the Father, properly. Our worship is in vain because we are worshiping that which we do not know. So what it does, it takes us back to what Jesus said to the woman at the well. He says, you worship what you do not know. You worship what you do not know. And again, we cannot properly worship God the Father if we don't know God the Father. And that's why Jesus in this passage here, he makes it clear to her, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Because salvation comes from the Jews because it is a Jewish man, the God-man, Jesus himself. That's why in John chapter 8, verse 24, John chapter 8, verse 24, I've taught on this verse many times over the years because of its importance. Jesus said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, the he in your Bible should be italicized. I have not yet found a translation that it's not. And the reason why it's italicized, if you go to the front of your Bible, will explain to you because that word was added. It was added to make the flow of the sentence um, become a little bit more clearer. But in this instance, I don't know that really that's what it's doing, unfortunately, but true. But the he is not there in the Greek. So let me read to you once again what Jesus said. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So unless someone recognizes Jesus Christ for who he is, he is the Christ, the Son of God. The I am, going back to Exodus chapter 3, in Moses' confrontation with God at the burning bush, 
unless someone recognizes Christ for who he is, unless God the Father has revealed this to that individual, then ultimately when it comes to worshiping God the Father, they don't have the Spirit of God within them. They're not born from above. They are worshiping in vain because they worship what they do not know. And their worship is absolutely, positively worthless. That's what some, well, quite often I I find myself really troubled down deep inside that the contemporary church today, the visible church, especially in America, church after church does all that it can to create a worship service in which the unbeliever, the person that is lost, the one that they claim is the seeker, will come in and be able to experience and enjoy and participate in the worship of the true and living God. The God that they claim is their God. But the problem is it doesn't line up with Scripture. Because an unbeliever, someone who does not know Christ, cannot truly worship God the Father in spirit and truth because they don't have the Spirit of God within them. And this is basically what Jesus is saying to this woman. You're worshiping what you do not know because the Spirit of God is not within you. You don't have a proper understanding. You're holding on to these places, particular places where God spoke to these particular leaders, these men of God at different times, and gave them instructions and said that this is where my presence will be. This is where you will come. You will worship. You will sacrifice. You will build an altar to me, etc., etc., at those times. But now, In the midst of all of it, we now find ourselves entering into the new covenant. An hour is coming. It's not far away that Jesus himself will go to that cross. He will suffer. He will die. He will shed his blood. And the shedding of his blood, the body which is broken, he will do so and bring forth the new covenant. Now, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, still indwelt in empowered men and women at different times and different places throughout the Old Testament. And actually, in this scene right here, we are still underneath the Old Testament. That's why he's talking about a time is coming. Uh, They are looking at the law and wanting to live by the law as they see it, as they study, as they hold on to just the Pentateuch. They're at odds with the Jews. The Jews see the Samaritan as half-breeds, as those who are not truly God's elect, God's children. They don't belong to them. Um, But they were brought about because of the sins of Jewish men who found themselves intertwining, intermingling, marrying, being a part of other women that were not a part of the Jewish people. And because of it, because of the division of things that took place 
and the kingdoms and the rulers. And I mean, the list that the story is just huge. There is a division. We even know from earlier in the story that the Samaritan woman says to Christ in verse 9, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, once again, there's a great divide. So Jesus is painting for her this picture of the reality of the Spirit of God uh, we realize in the last days, matter of fact, uh, a couple things. If you go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when the people were amazed as they were speaking in the language of those Jews who have gathered together in Jerusalem, they were uh, amazed, baffled, Some were mocking, and some were even saying that they were drunk, full of sweet wine. But if you look at verse 15 of Acts chapter 2, this is what Peter, as he stood up before all of them, along with the others, he said, For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit. See, here's the key. The receiving of the Holy Spirit, having the Spirit of God within you, the promise of the inheritance that is yet to come. As a matter of fact, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul writes about the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, if you want to do an in depth study about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8 would be a great place to go. But in the midst of this, Paul defines something very clearly as he writes to the believers at Rome. Listen to this in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And you can find other passages in the book of 1 Thessalonians and Ephesians, the understanding that the promise is given uh, by God the Father to those who believe. It is the pledge, it's the promise, the seal of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit of God dwells within those who believe, those who put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ. We become the temple of God. So back to our text in John chapter 4 here, we have distinctively and clearly two things so far. Biblical worship is not about a place. And true biblical worship can only be done by those who know God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, we can have people who are a part of a worship service believe that they're worshiping, but they're really not worshiping because they don't know that which they're worshiping. 
But it says in verse 23 that the hour is coming, now is, that the true worshipers. Once again, I find it interesting here. We go from just worshipers to true worshipers. There's, there is a definement here. And I've come to believe over the years there are many people that participate and practice in worship. I don't even I hate to even use that word practice, but I'm not sure what other word I would use. They believe that they're learning about worship and they're gaining something from their worship, uh, but they're really not because they don't know the one in whom they're claimed to worshiping. But they participate. That's probably the best way to put it. They participate in the worship service. But he says here, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. We've already covered that. If they don't have the spirit of the living God within them, they can't worship him properly. They can't truly worship him. Their worship is worthless. It's in vain. Their hearts are far away from him. They don't truly know him. And the only way to know him is through knowing the Son. And knowing the Son is a work of God's grace through the Father. The Father reveals who the Son is to this individual. But it says here, in spirit and truth, when we think about truth, I think about the most purest truth there is, and that is the Word of God. God's Word is truth. Matter of fact, just recently at the church that I attend, our pastor has been going through the book of John. And in John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus says as he's praying to God the Father, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. See, in order to properly worship God, we must worship God first and foremost by knowing who he is. And the only way we can know who he is is that, once again, God the Father, through his Son, reveals who the Son is. As we put our faith, our trust, as we are born again, as we're believing in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within us. We're able to properly worship God the Father in spirit. So when we're in spirit, it's not about a place. We can worship God the Father in a car. We could worship God the Father as we're walking down the road. We could worship God the Father in the privacy of our own study at home, uh, whatever the case may be. God is not tied to a specific location. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem t- uh, to go to worship God. We don't have to go to the church to worship God. But we also must worship in truth. We have to know who God is. And if we don't know who God is and we understand God, then our worship, even though we may be worshiping God in spirit, we're lacking the truth because we don't understand truly who he is. Matter of fact, this is one of the issues I I don't have time to get into today on this program, and we will in the podcasts that are coming ahead. But one of the things today that has become very bothersome to me is during the worship services of the visible church. There are people who sing songs and say things about God that are not biblical, that are not true. There are even hymns that have been written in the days of old 
and especially choruses and contemporary quote-unquote worship songs that don't line up with Scripture. They talk about a God who doesn't exist in the pages here of what we call the Bible. They sing things that just don't make any sense because it is not the truth about God. A lot of it is just mere pure emotionalism versus truth. It's subjective truth because individuals who wrote it, individuals who hold on to it, to them, they believe it's meaningful. But being meaningful and being truthful are two different things. Actually, they should really go together hand in hand, but truth has to be the driving force. If we're not singing, if we're not proclaiming truth about God, then we cannot worship God properly. So as I look at this, again, back to our text, Jesus is making it clear that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. See, this is interesting, too. It's not the worshipers who are seeking after the Father. It's the Father who is seeking these type of worshipers who are actually doing it right, who are worshiping biblically, who are following the principles that we find in the Word of God as being that which go hand in hand. We are living in the New Covenant. We are living under the New Covenant. We are following the words of Christ. What we find within the pages of Scripture is the truth. All Scripture is God-breathed. But we have to understand the difference between the old and the new. Matter of fact, if you want to really get into an in-depth study about that, you go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a great study to understand the old covenant and the new covenant. But the key here is, once again, the Father seeks these type of people to be his worshipers. Why? Because they're doing it right. They're doing it right. And then Jesus once again says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So it's interesting to me, and it should be to you also, that he repeats this. This is the second time in almost the same breath that Jesus says the Father must be worshipped in spirit and truth. Emphasizing. If you're a student of the Word, you know that when something is repeated, especially that close, then there is an emphasis on the importance of this. And what I find interesting, and we don't have time to get into it today, there's no mention in this passage about music. There's no mention about singing. There's no mention of a lot of different things when it comes to worship. But the foundation of biblical worship is found right here in this passage. 
Thanks for listening to Study the Word Podcast with Bible teacher Dr. Marty Minto. If you have questions in regards to today's study or any questions about the Bible and or spiritual issues, then email us at studythewordpodcast at gmail.com. We hope through today's teaching you have learned biblical truth so that you can teach others and defend the Christian faith. Tell others about Study the Word Podcast available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. Once again, thanks for listening to Study the Word Podcast.